If you'd open your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, thank you. While you're turning there, let me give you greetings from Western Seminary, where I work. I teach theology at Western Seminary and Hinson Church in Portland, where I serve as an elder. They will, will be praying for us probably about right now, too. So I, I, I will say, yeah, I, I, I even attended this church the, during the last three years of my, uh, of my time at Oregon State. Uh, Dr. Benny was my advisor. I, I was one of those nuclear engineer guys, and... Um, he did such a good job that here I am in ministry at this point, <laughs> not, in, not in engineering. You know, I would say what, what a blessing and comfort it is to have an advisor at a school who prays for you and with you, though, I, that, an incredible grace in my life. Luke chapter 2, uh, Luke, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, a careful researcher and historian Everything that he writes, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke chapter 2, verse 51 and 52. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Would you pray with me briefly? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So it is Mother's Day, and what that implies, I know this is a university town, so, so we gotta be really intellectually elite here. What that implies is that Jesus had a mother. All right, I know, that's intense. It's intense. Jesus was fully human. Jesus was fully human. He had a mom and a dad. And granted, he didn't have a dad the way that most everyone else has a dad, uh, but he had a mom the way everyone has a mom. He was fully and completely human. What do you think of the humanity of Jesus? Do you see it as interesting, as important? Maybe necessary, necessary. Unbelievers, people who do not believe the gospel, they have no problem with the humanity of Jesus. They might even grant that Jesus was the most remarkable human being who ever lived. Like if you go walk around on the street, it, it's, it's still kind of bad form to, to talk smack about Jesus. I mean, you know, that'd be like talking bad about Mother Teresa. Uh, probably if you were to ask people, to say, who's the most remarkable human who ever lived? Uh, people would say, Jesus. Jesus. And, and, and I want to affirm that. That is true. Jesus was the most remarkable person who has ever and will ever live. But of course, the church understands Jesus to be far more than merely human. He was both human and divine. And in the church, especially the American church in the 21st century, coming off the, the, you know, the battles between the fundamentalists and the liberals in the early 20th century, we have become really good at defending the deity of Jesus, and we should. We ought to defend the deity of Jesus with every fiber of our being, because if Jesus is not fully divine, then we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. We have not actually been reconciled to God. It is absolutely necessary for the gospel that Jesus be fully divine. 
But I think in our haste to defend the deity of Jesus, sometimes uh, we gloss over it's his humanity. Or maybe we just don't know what to do with his true humanity. I think that sometimes people in the church think that Jesus was effectively just God in disguise, right? He, he looked like a human, but he wasn't really human, not like us. He just appeared or seemed to be human. So when he fights temptation or, or he demonstrates his, his brilliance in his interactions with the Pharisees, say, we just, talk, we just chalk that up to his deity. Well, of course, Jesus never sinned. He was God. Of course, he didn't yield to that temptation. He was God. The apostles and the gospel writers do assert and defend the deity of Jesus. He was the son of God. He is the son of God. He reigns forever as God. But the apostles and gospel writers present to us a very human Jesus as well. And I think this is no more evident than the passage we'll be looking at this morning. Luke chapter 2, the biblical narratives of the boyhood of Jesus. There's, there's actually very little said. We're going to exhaust everything that the Bible says about the boyhood of Jesus. It's all right here in the gospel of Luke. And it's not all that awesome. It's almost as if the gospel writers, when considering the boyhood of Jesus, they're basically just saying, nothing to see here, folk. Move along, move along, nothing to see. Now, again, I am not denying his deity, not for a second. Far from it, Jesus Christ, as Luke earlier in his gospel, Luke chapter one, in the first part of Luke chapter two, asserts that Jesus is fully divine. It's even going to become clear in this passage we look at that Jesus, while being fully and completely human, is the son of the most high God. But this morning, as we consider this passage, if you're here this morning and you, you, don't, you don't really understand yourself to be a Christian, you're, you're, you're checking Jesus out. Well, we're, like I said, we're, we're going to cover everything there is in the Bible about the boyhood, the humanity of Jesus. And, and what I would like for you to consider this morning is your need to be reconciled to God and what it will take to reconcile you to God. Doesn't it have, I'd like to consider this, doesn't it have to be someone who is both divine and human? Someone who can stand in the gap for you. Someone who, as it were, could put his hand on God and could put his hand on you and can mediate between the two of you. And, and, and if that's what you truly need, then would you consider Jesus? For, for the rest of you, you, you do understand yourself to be Christian, then I would like for you to consider this morning the importance, the vital importance of the humanity of Jesus. If Jesus is fully human, just like you, then what significance does that bring to every aspect of your life and every aspect of Jesus' ministry for you even now? even now. So Luke chapter two, we're going to begin in verse 21. Here's the context. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. The angels have announced that birth to the shepherds who in turn have made haste to the manger to check things out. Everything we associate with the first Christmas, the birth of Christ, it's now over. Today, this morning, we're going to cover as it were the morning after. All the wrapping paper has been picked up. The tree is down. Mary and, G- Mary and Joseph now have to get on with their lives as this family of now three. That was kind of a joke, right? You're supposed to laugh. There was no Christmas tree. There were no wrapping paper, nothing like that, because the Magi haven't even shown up to this point, all right? So what we're going to consider first, verses 21 through 24, a very ordinary upbringing for Jesus, a very ordinary upbringing. 
And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay. Our attention is on the young family of three now. It's day eight. Jesus is circumcised. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant was made with Abraham about 2,000 years before Jesus was born. So every Jewish boy, for the most part, has been circumcised on the eighth day for the last 2,000 years. Jesus is named by his parents, the name given by the angel to Joseph. You will call him Jesus, which basically just means the Lord saves. A fairly common name, actually. Uh, Joshua would be like a a modern-day English equivalent of that. Then on the 40th day after giving birth, Mary goes about a ritual of purification, just like every Jewish woman had been doing ever since the time of Moses for 1,400 years. 2,000 years of Jewish circumcision, 1,400 years of, of, of motherly purification. That's a long time. Why does Mary do this? Well, in Leviticus 12, it was quoted, a little was quoted by Luke. Let's go look at it in its context. Leviticus chapter 12, verses six and seven. When her days of purification are complete, that is for mothers who have just given birth, whether for a son or daughter, she, the mother, is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old male lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He will present them before the Lord and make atonement on her behalf. That The priest is going to do that. She will be clean from her discharge of blood. This is the law for a woman giving birth, whether to a male or female. That's verses 6 and 7 of Leviticus 12. All right, okay, so, so Mary does this. Mary and Joseph do everything that the law prescribes. What does this tell us? It tells us that parents are a powerful means of grace in the life of a child. Parents are a powerful means of grace in the life of a child. Let's, let's pause for a moment and consider the God-ordained, or, in English, the God-ordained role for Mary and Joseph. God the Father sent his son, the second member of the Trinity, to save us, to reveal himself to us. This is an awesome gift. It is a jaw-dropping gift. We should fall to our knees in wonder and amazement every single time we contemplate what God has done to reveal himself and to save us. And now, while maintaining that sense of awe, contemplate the manner in which God sent his son not with flaming sword as the you know, macho uh, king son of David. Instead, he's born as a human. He comes as a baby in the most lowly of circumstances. The incarnation of the son of God is the means through which humanity will be saved. The cosmos will be recreated. The lordship of God will be executed over all and the glory of God will be magnified. And everything is at stake here. This is God's plan. Now, imagine you're one of the angelic host. Imagine you're one of the angelic hosts. And you're wondering, how is God going to pull this off? He's been making promises. 
How is he actually going to do this? What awesome thing is the Lord going to do? What are you going to do for this, the son of God, who is the son of David, who will reign on a throne forever and ever? And the answer is from God, I'm going to give him a mother and a father. And you're like, that's it? That's your plan? That's your plan? I mean, to, to realize this plan, the creator and sovereign God grants custody, as it were, to Mary and Joseph. Mary, his biological mother, Joseph, his adoptive father. And their task, be a mom and a dad. That's their task. Imagine Mary and Joseph. After the shepherds have left, the dust has now settled, and they're asking themselves, just like every parent does, you know, like when the mother-in-law leaves, and you're, you're like, uh, what do we do now? We got this little baby. What, what are we supposed to do? Uh, where's the instruction manual for raising the son of God? Right? And there is none. There is none. Even if the angels had dropped off such a manual, it would have looked pretty unimpressive, wouldn't it have? I suspect would have said something like, be a mom and a dad. Love, care, provide, nurture, feed, clean, clothe, instruct when necessary, kill spiders and snakes, protect, challenge, all the things that parents do. All the things parents do. So to all the moms and and dads out there right now, and and maybe you're frustrated and you're tired of that 24-7 grind of leaning into the mundane, please know that you have a holy calling, a holy calling. And, And I get it. You're not Mary and Joseph, and you're not raising the Son of God. But you are raising little divine image bearers who one day, Lord willing, will be adopted into the family of the living God. And your task is exactly the same as that which was given to Mary and to Joseph. The instruction manual is identical. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. For Mary and Joseph, as we see, that was doing everything that the law prescribed for Jesus. He was circumcised just like every other Jewish child since the time of Abraham. For you, that involves doing all that the new covenant prescribes for you and your children. You are a powerful means of grace in the life of your child. In fact, you're the conduit through which most every grace is going to come. To your child. So please hang in there. Lean into the mundane because it's in the ordinary things that God gives the most grace. Now I get it too. It, your, your child is not the son of God. Chances are, I, ho- I hate to break it to you, but I think you've come to this realization by now. Contrary to their grandparents' opinions, your child is not even remarkable. Okay? <laughs> All right. What does that mean? It means you're not exempt from the ordinary means of grace, regardless of how gifted you think your child might be. What does that mean? Love your child. Pray for your child. Offer the appropriate truth at the appropriate time and try as best as you can by grace to create an atmosphere that is conducive to your child's growth in the Lord. Now, Mary and Joseph did have an extraordinary child, okay? But they plunged into the ordinary things required of anybody at that time. And if Mary and Joseph did that for Jesus, how much more so should you do that for your child? 
That means you prioritize praying for and with your children. That means you prioritize reading the word of God together. And that means you prioritize being here Sunday after Sunday on the Lord's day, even when more fun things encroach. Even then, if Jesus was not exempt from such things, why would your child be? So be faithful in the ordinary. Be faithful in the ordinary. Go back to our text. Mary offered a pair of turtle doves, we're told in Luke. But she was supposed to provide a lamb, wasn't she? That's what the law prescribed. But she went with turtle doves. She went with a poorer option. Why? If, if you were to go back to the Leviticus 12 passage we read earlier that says you must offer a lamb, it, the, the next verse, verse 8, says this. If she doesn't have sufficient means for a sheep, she may take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Then the priest will make atonement for, on her behalf and she will be clean. Do you realize what that's saying? It's saying that the parents of the one who would be the very lamb of God, who would offer himself on behalf of the world, his parents were too poor to afford a lamb to offer on her behalf. And that was God's plan. That was God's plan. Uh, From a worldly perspective, Mary and Joseph are completely unremarkable. They're probably less than remarkable. They have less than remarkable means, even by first century Jewish standards. But our text shows here that they were faithful in the ordinary means of grace. Read the Bible, pray, meditate on scripture, gather with God's people. Those are the most effective means of grace that we have today. I think it also teaches us that we should learn, learn to be content. Apparently, you don't need stuff to raise your child well. The passage teaches that the boy Jesus was raised in a poor household, poverty-level household. He didn't have a lot of stuff, even by first-century Jewish standards. Didn't have the latest Apple product, didn't have the latest bit of technology, the nicest clothes, none of that. And, and don't we have to say, you know, we're, most of us here are Christians, don't we have to say Jesus turned out all right? I mean, I think, I think we have to conclude that, don't we? Right? Apparently, you don't need stuff to parent well. How did Jesus turn out? Well, look at verses 39 and 40 of Luke 2. It's a summary passage. Midway through it, we'll be looking at. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is a statement of the boyhood of Jesus, a summary statement. Goes into the next decade. Jesus grew, became strong, was filled with wisdom. And the priorities we see here is prudence. The priority is prudence, wisdom, being able to apply truth to life correctly and adeptly. We are told by the apostles in their letters to the early churches that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I think it means that Jesus was and is the most wise human who ever lived. But I don't think that was just automatic, like he came out of the womb dropping wisdom bombs you know, to the shepherds who were there in attendance, right? I don't think that's what's going on. How do we know that? Look at verse 51 and 52, what we read earlier. He went down with them, Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. The Jesus, and Jesus, verse 52, increased in wisdom and in stature 
and in favor with God. Man, he grows in wisdom. It's developed over time. How? I suspect Jesus meditating on the word of God, both alone and with his family. It was developed in the routine of synagogue attendance week after week after week. And I have to believe the kind and gentle instruction of his parents. I mean, for for so many here, where did you first hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you know where I heard it? Time after time, sitting on my mom's lap. The first evangelist in my life. And God used that powerfully. How do we grow in wisdom? The ordinary means of grace provided for us. The spiritual disciplines, read, study, gather with God's people, receive instruction, correction, come and take part in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Learn, be a learner, be a disciple, a learner of the way of Jesus. And if we go back to parenting, we could, we'd have to say this, that should be the priority of our parenting. Your child would grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Growth in wisdom. Not that they would earn some scholarship, not that they would get some trophy, not that they would graduate top of their class, but they would grow in wisdom and in favor with God and then in favor with man as they have grown in favor with God. Does that make sense? And it's so hard. It's so hard to do that today. Jesus, though, that's how he grew, a very ordinary childhood. But there's some expectation with Jesus too, as verses 25 through 38 tell us. So let's read that. We pick up the story again. Jesus is about 40 days old or so, right? Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. And he came in the spirit into the temple, that's Simeon. And when the parents, Jesus' parents, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My translation, Lord, you have kept your promises. You have kept your promises For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that, your th- so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin or maiden, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at this very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the young family, they're, back at, you know, they're at the temple for the rite of purification for Mary, and they run into the man Simeon, 
We're told he is righteous and devout and is waiting for the consolation or the redemption, the salvation of Israel. And, and so, so he's righteous and devout. But how? What does it take to be righteous and devout? In this text, believe the promises of God and wait for him to keep them. God, you have promised. Now do it. Do it. I will wait on you. I will trust you to keep your word. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Messiah. And so he comes this day, we're told, to the temple in the spirit. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. And when he sees Mary and Joseph with this baby, he knows this is the fulfillment of God's promises. And so he rushes over and and as it were, he takes the baby Jesus in his arms. He's elated, recognizing him to be the answer to his prayers and the prayers of saints ever since God has made promises. And in the spirit, he begins to speak. And there is a lot to learn here. He says, first of all, I have seen your salvation as he holds Jesus. To see Jesus is to see God's salvation. The baby in the arms of Simeon, he's not just a way to be saved. He's not just an important person. He's really, quite frankly, not even the most important person in God's plan. He's the only person in God's plan. He is it. This is God's salvation, whom he is holding in his arms as a baby. Jesus is the plan. Another way to say this, Jesus isn't plan C, D, or F. Jesus is not even plan A. He's just the plan. And there is no plan A, B, or C. He's just the plan. He is the way that the one God has provided for salvation. We also see here that God is the one who makes and prepares salvation. It's, I mean, it's, it's a biblical truism. Jonah said this, salvation is of the Lord. That is, if any saving is going to be done, it has to be done by the Lord from start to finish. And here we find out that it is done in and through and by Jesus. You see, we are not saved by our righteousness or our piety. Simeon was not saved because he was devout. Simeon was saved because here in his arms was the salvation of not just God's people, but Simeon too. We're not saved by attempting to balance the scales, hoping that I do more good than bad and God will let me in, whatever let me in means. Nor are we saved by acts of Christian service, by Bible study or or church attendance coming here this morning. Of course, all of those things are good in and of themselves, but in order to understand how to be saved, we, we need to understand what we need saved for or who we need saved from. We need saved from God, from his righteous judgment. And of course, in and of ourselves, that's impossible. We can't do that. We can't do that. We are covenant breakers. And so God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, right? He has, he has sent a human himself, God himself, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. The son of God comes as a human to do for us what we could not do for ourselves to reconcile us to God. Salvation is of the Lord, but it's going to be a human, God in the flesh, who does it for us. We are saved by looking to Jesus, by confessing with our mouth that he is Lord, 
by believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That, as many of you know, that is the gospel, isn't it? It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus that saves. And, and, and if you're here this morning and that sounds weird or strange to you, then boy, come, come talk to me. Come talk to uh, one of the pastors or, or elders or, or talk to anyone who looks like they know something about Jesus, right? <laughs> uh, it's the most important thing that you could do today. It's the most important thing that you could do ever because the stakes are so high. We're told that the salvation of the Lord is prepared in the presence of all people. Simeon understood this. He understood that the, that the salvation of God was public, public, and it was for everyone. It was for everyone. And this is underscored in his next statements. He says that salvation is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. God's plan from the beginning was the salvation of peoples, the nations, the, the ethnos. And so here we are. I don't know how many Jewish people are here today, but I'm guessing not as many as Gentiles. I'm just guessing, right? God made a promise to Abraham. One day I will bless all the nations through you. And Jesus Christ, 2,000 years, is the fulfillment of that. It was for the glory of Israel in fulfillment of so many prophecies. Like, like in Isaiah 46, God says, I will bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, the holy place of Jerusalem, for Israel, my glory. This salvation in fulfillment of promises will be accomplished in and through Israel. The nations will be blessed Nations will be saved in and through the son of David, the king of Israel. Of course, Mary and Joseph are just amazed at this, right? They probably had a hard time getting to the temple on time, right? Because it's difficult when you have a little baby. Maybe they're stunned at the scope of salvation that, that uh, Simeon has told them of. But, but more likely, I, I think they're just in the grind. They, they, they needed encouragement. So, so Simeon then turns to them. And he warns them, a glorious salvation is costly. Humans are going to resist the Lord's salvation. Not all is going to go smoothly. In Jesus' ministry, it's going to be difficult. This, this child that I have in my arms right now, not everyone's going to love him. His path is not easy. His choices will not be simple. And it's going to bring division. Mary and Joseph needed to hear this. But I think he turns to Mary because Mary needed it most. Because she's his mom, and as the Gospels indicate, Joseph's not going to be around for the duration of Jesus' life. She, would, she, Mary, would see her own people, her own people turn against her son and demand that he be killed. Then she would see the Roman government nail him to a cross, the most ignominious and brutal and humiliating death possible at the time. I mean, she was his mom, Right? Had to be brutal for her. Mary had to be prepared for the rejection of her son. And I think we in the church, we need to be prepared for that as well. Now, we've had 2,000 years of this, right? So by now, we should get it. But Jesus' ministry was not and still is not universally received. It's available for the nations. It's public. But the nations are not going to accept it. Jesus warned us of this in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and and few find it. Simeon, though, goes further. He states, Jesus' ministry is going to reveal the conditions of people's hearts toward God. 
One of Jesus' most significant kingdom parables, really his first one, is the parable of the soils, in which he teaches the kingdom's not going to be universally received. The seed of the word, the proclamation of the gospel, is going to go out and it's going to land on all sorts of soils, but not, all, not every soil is going to produce good fruit. And he's warning people, the, the word of God's going to go out and it's going to land in hearts, but not every heart is going to receive it. The gospel's to be preached to everyone, but not everyone's going to accept it. In fact, it's the condition of the heart that is determinative here. And so for us, we need to know, we must share, teach, preach the gospel with boldness and with diligence. We need to do our best. We need to try to answer as many questions as we possibly can because I want to tell you as a Christian, I do not feel intellectually inferior. I don't feel like I'm asked to believe silly or stupid things. I think there are answers out there. I feel completely and absolutely intellectually justified in being a follower of Jesus, all right? But in the end, people will not come to Christ by the cleverness of our arguments unless their hearts are ready. And only the Lord can change a heart. Response to Jesus reveals the condition of hearts toward God, and no one demonstrates that better than Anna in this passage. Right? Anna's a prophet, we're told, but that's not the most important thing about her. The critical issue is not her gifting, it's the status of her heart. She's devout, we're told, focused on serving God. And so when she, when she sees Jesus, she welcomes him. She's excited. You almost get the sense that like Simeon is there, right, holding Jesus. And Anna sees him and freaks out because this is the answer to her prayers. What does she do when she sees Jesus? She thanks and praises God because she sees rightly that he will bring the salvation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. And then she gets busy about telling the Lord's people about the Lord's salvation through his Messiah. Let's just pause and let that sink in. Anna's response to seeing Jesus is to thank God, praise God, and tell people about Jesus. That's what she did. Maybe that's what we should do. Those who know the Lord, thank God for this incredible salvation. Praise God for this incredible, wonderful salvation and to tell others about it. The promise of Jesus, I think, is is demonstrated in another story, the the last one here in Luke chapter 2. Look at verses 41 through 51. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. But he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Okay, we go from Jesus being... 40 days old, now to 12 years old. It's another pilgrim feast. The family of Jesus, they sojourn to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Moreover, we're told that that was their habit. Remember, they're doing the ordinary things. They're faithful in those. They're pious and faithful. Tradition tells us that the men were required to go. Basically, all of Israel is supposed to empty out and head for Jerusalem. 
It's crammed with people. Men are supposed to go. Women would often stay behind. So for a woman to go to make that trip, that was an act of even greater piety. Mary and Joseph are both there. This trip, unlike the previous 11, was not like the others. Typical practice is to go in caravan with family and friends. It's like the party starts early, right? And you just travel down. I mean, imagine if you're a kid, just this walk, this trek to Jerusalem for, for a big festival. But the festival starts when you're with your friends and your cousins and your family, right? It's just fun and exciting and crazy. Uh, so it's fun, but it's also necessary because the roads were dangerous, often populated by bandits and, and rogues. And so when it came time for the caravan to leave, to return to Nazareth, Mary and Joseph, they just assumed Jesus is in the group. There's a lot of them going. Of course, Jesus is with him, right? When to their horror, at the end of the first day of travel back, they discover Jesus is not with them. Hmm. They react immediately. I mean, of course they would. Any parent would be concerned, right? You've just lost your kid. Mary and Joseph, though, have just lost the Son of God, right? (laughs) So they turn back, and they search throughout Jerusalem. And, of course, it's just teeming with people because all of Israel is in Jerusalem. How do you find someone there? It's just crammed with people. It takes them three days. On the third day of their search, they finally find him, and he's in the temple, sitting amongst the rabbis, asking them questions as though this is where he's supposed to be. The rabbis are super impressed with his understanding. They like his questions. And then when they ask him questions, they like his answers. Mary and Joseph are astonished, we're told. They're relieved. They're stunned. They actually scold Jesus, showing more restraint than most, I would add. (laughs) Right? You've just found your child after three days. You probably want to wring his neck, right? But but, but instead, Mary just says, why would you do this? Why would you treat us this way? We were in distress. Jesus responds as though, you know, really, mom, dad, the problem's, I mean, this is a you thing, not a me thing. I'm where I'm supposed to be here. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? He didn't just happen to be there. He had to be there. It was necessary. So Mary and Joseph, they just stare at him in disbelief. You know, what are you supposed to say? Just get in the car. And, and they take him back to Nazareth right? But we're told that Mary ponders these things in her heart. She reflects on the nature of her son. We aren't told what she was thinking, but we are told that Jesus was submissive to his mom and his dad because it was right for him to do so. What can we learn from that exchange? Well, Jesus knows who his father is. Jesus knows who his father is. This, this most human of children, Jesus, was simultaneously the son of God. And even as he submits to his parents day after day, he's growing in his messianic consciousness. I suspect that that was revealed to him by the Spirit through his study of Scripture. As he went to synagogue Saturday after Saturday. And as he sat with Mary and Joseph and they rehearsed with him the story of his birth and just who he was. So we turn to our introduction. What do we do with the humanity of Jesus? Do we understand its importance? Do we comprehend its absolute necessity? I mean, the gospel writers did. They went out of their way to present to us a very completely, totally human Jesus because they understood if Jesus is not fully human, then he cannot substitute for us. He cannot lift the curse of sin because sin was brought into the world by humans. And it has to be worked out by humans. But we can't do that, can we? 
I mean, the Bible's clear. We can't save ourselves, and only God can save. And so how, when sin is a human problem that requires a human solution, but only God can save, how can God do this? God becomes a man. God becomes a man and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Everything depends upon the full deity of Jesus Christ and everything depends upon his full humanity. And the gospel writers make this clear and the church has confessed both the full deity and full humanity of Christ. It matters that Jesus was human, not just so he could substitute for us. Old and wise and prophets proclaim the Lord's plan for this child. Temple leaders and teachers are astounded at his understanding, but the boy Jesus that Luke presents is very human. Because unless Jesus is fully human and fully divine, we cannot be saved, and Jesus cannot do anything for us that he presently does. As I've said, it takes a human to atone for human sin, but it is far more than that. We right now have a great high priest who sits at the right hand of God, who is God, someone who, as it were, can put his hand on God and who is fully human, just like you, and can put his hand on you and can mediate for you your great high priest who knows what it's like to go through what you go through, who knows what it's like to be a kid and to be maybe exasperated with his parents, who knows what it's like to be tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. That Jesus, fully human and fully divine, sits now at the right hand of God, and we are told in Hebrews, lives to make intercession for us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you have been so good to us by doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We praise you for this incredible, wonderful plan that you have worked out for us. It is so good at every level. It has to be true. And to you, Lord Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for interceding for us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being our savior, our king, and our great high priest. We owe you everything. It is in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by your authority that we can even approach the throne of grace to pray to our Father. And so we do so now in the name of Jesus. Amen.